and welcome to J.P. Mac's Dystopic Journal. Hi, welcome to the podcast. Uh, today I was watching a video by Jordan Peterson where he interviews Alex Epstein, a fossil fuel apologist and author of The Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. In the interview, Epstein mentioned uh, just how depraved the point of view of some of the climate change alarmist leaders is or are and uh, he mentioned one in particular uh, this one was um, this quote is from David M. Graber back in 1989 where he's doing a book review for the Los Angeles Times it's uh, on this book by Bill McKimmon called The End of Nature and so this quote just uh, struck me um, with its sheer immorality and I think you'll see what I mean and so this prompted me to write a piece in my my blog uh, Liberty Relearn so here is the piece from my blog and it's entitled when climate change alarmism crosses into anti-humanism a deeply immoral anti-human point of view Climate alarmism is bad enough, but some thought leaders who drive it, who are its philosophical torchbearers, have an even more troubling view of humanity than that far exceeds the usual misanthropy from, that you might expect from its proponents. This quote comes from a review of The End of Nature by Bill McKibben, published in the Los Angeles Times, written by David M. Graber in 1989. It reflects a deeply immoral philosophy. Here's the quote. That makes what is happening no less tragic for those of us who value wilderness for its own sake, not for what value it confers upon mankind. I, for one, cannot wish upon either my children or the rest of Earth's biota a tame planet, a human-managed planet, be it monstrous or, however unlikely, benign. McKibben is a biocentrist, and so am I. Human happiness and certainly human vicinity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know social scientists who remind me that people are part of nature, but it isn't true. Somewhere along the line, about a billion years ago, maybe half that, we quit the contract and became a cancer. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the earth. And that is David M. Graber in his article, Mother Nature as a Hothouse Flower, The End of Nature by Bill McKibben. This again is a deeply immoral outlook on life. Sadly, it is shared by a great many of people. Morality in general terms can be thought of to be comprised of two twin values or pillars. The first, how much inaction serves life. And second, how much inaction allows for free will among humans. Both values are equal and mutually reinforcing. The worldview expressed in the quote is an affront to the first pillar of morality, the life pillar. The casual disregard for billions of human lives when he writes, We are not 
interested in the utility of a particular species or free-flowing river or ecosystem to mankind, they have intrinsic value, more value to me than another human body or a billion of them, is shocking. Even the most generous interpretation of this quote, that the billion human lives that have less value than the ecological purity of a piece of geography are notional lives not yet established would still be odious. He calls himself a biocentrist. He would claim to be deeply invested in the life pillar, except he values no human life if it is advanced past the point of aboriginal. He speaks of valuing wilderness quote, for its own sake, not for what value it confers upon mankind. He forgets or is oblivious to the fact that even in appreciating nature for its own sake suggests a value it confers on humankind. The nature, the ability to appreciate something for its own sake or for any sake is an ability possessed by mankind alone, so far as we know. One might put this riddle to him and McKibben. If a tree falls in the woods and there are no living beings with sentience enough to value it for its own sake, does it have any true value? Graeber's notion is also moral with regards to the free will pillar. He despises that which makes humans humans, referring again to his quote, human happiness and certain, certainly human profundity are not as important as a wild and healthy planet. I know a social scientist who remind me that people are part of nature, but it isn't true. Somewhere along the line, about a billion years ago, maybe a half billion, we quit the contract and became a cancer. We have become a plague upon ourselves and upon the earth." End quote. So, what is it that happened a half billion to a billion years ago that is, in his mind, that Graeber believes constitutes mankind quitting the contract? Only mankind evolving to the point that it can meaningfully and deliberately enact its free will. That's all. As soon as we are able to express our free will, that apparently is when we broke the contract with life and became a cancer. Our possession of agency is that which not only separates us from the animals, which is that what Graeber and his ilk have a problem with, but also makes us in God's image logically if there is a creator, then he would have a beef with him also. That, if true, would bespeak a tremendous arrogance and hubris on his part. The problem for those possessing greater moral clarity, more regard for human life, is that there are enough people that hold the same nihilistic view who are in control of things like our industry, economy, and governments to do real damage to real human beings. Not notional human beings yet to be born, but living, breathing human beings alive right now. 
These people created a system by which a country like Sri Lanka could be convinced to commit self-destructive behavior. The resulting poverty and hunger finally drove the people to overthrow their government. Similar people running the Netherlands have decided there are too many farms in their country using farming methods that are too effective. Global organizations and the boardrooms of many a powerful corporation are populated with people holding such dim views of humanity. Imagine if the CEO of a bank with global reach held such anti-human views. Imagine the head of state of whatever country you're a citizen of holding the view that there are just too many humans on the planet. What sort of disastrous policies might they prepare to enact? The unfortunate truth is we don't have to imagine. Economic, agricultural, and energy policy are all being shaped by people who share the view that humankind is a cancer upon the earth. God and sane human beings save us from such people. Amen. And so like I said earlier, when I heard uh, Alex Epstein man, uh, uh, mention this quote and uh, Peterson recite this quote, I was struck by the sheer immorality of it. Now, like I say in my article, uh, morality, generally speaking, is comprised of uh, two pillars, if you will. Um, the first pillar is the life pillar. Obviously, without life, you cannot have, nothing follows um, for there to be any morality. And the second pillar is with regards to human beings, uh, an action or any action and its ability to uh, allow for human free will or uh, an action that denies it uh, uh, free will. And so immorality would be comprised of either or both uh, actions that either uh, destroy life inherently destroy life or inherently limit or vastly um, truncate human free will the ability to for other human beings to apply reason and problem-solve and work out their own uh, values and, and their own priorities and act on their on behalf of their own self-interest and so you have these uh, two forces at work that combine um, to create what we would call morality. And as you can see, um, this quote, these, um, this person, um, this uh, Graeber person, and also uh, apparently shares this view with uh, Bill McKibben, uh, who wrote that book that was mentioned, um, they have this deeply nihilistic and deeply anti-human uh, outlook on life. And also, as I mentioned, sadly, it's not uncommon. Um, for instance, can you imagine 
how many people within the World Economic Forum and or the World Bank or any other um, number of global entities, particularly left-leaning global, global entities, where the members share this basic point of view that man, uh, far from being the cure, is actually the cancer and they believe that the planet would be better off without it, without man. Now, the question of better off for whom, uh, they can't answer. Because, as I mentioned, the value in all of our resources is only um, that which uh, mankind places upon it. Okay, you have other animals that are living in nature. They can... Um, identify the nature of, of you, know, you know, a rock or a tree or a piece of grass and they can understand that to be food or be a danger, you know, some other wild animal, some predator might be a danger. Um, they might see water and understand that they can drink it and, you know, that uh, too much sunlight is bad for them, not enough is bad for them, and, you know, the shade is good for getting out of the sun, and uh, the water, you know, if you can swim, is good for cooling off. Okay, so the uh, animals can recognize their environments in such basic terms, but they don't have what we would call really an appreciation for those things. They understand that they exist and they understand that their purpose with regards to their survival, but they have no really intrinsic appreciation for it. Um, probably, most likely, the coyote baying at the moon isn't profoundly moved by the beauty of the moon. They are just enacting a visceral reaction uh, caused by it. And so to the other creatures. They have a fundamental understanding of the world around them, but that doesn't mean they have an appreciation for it. And I would argue only, only human beings have the capacity for appreciation and to understand on a more profound level the beauty and significance of such things in nature. Now that's not to say that our appreciation for nature doesn't uh, lead us to want to preserve it because of course it does. Um, you know we need to be good stewards of the world and the world around us and of nature. You know we not we need to take care not to poison our, our rivers and uh, overhunt our wildlife to extinction, extinction and not to overfish our oceans and our waters and things like that. We have to be careful not to destroy too many of the trees lest we be left um, without anything to burn or make houses out of. Okay, so maybe you've seen like uh, 
pictures of Easter Island and you have these great uh, megaliths there these great uh, stone stone uh, people uh, faces and the one thing you, you also notice is that they have no trees on that island that because they destroyed all of their trees um, either making canoes or just making houses and they didn't replace it enough and so it is true that mankind can have a detrimental impact on the environment to the extent that it hurts himself and that is something we have to be aware of but that certainly doesn't mean that all of nature has to be left pristine um, for instance our farms would not be very effective if we went back to um, the pre-industrial revolution or agrarian era um, ways of farming much less if we went back to the hunter-gatherer things before there was even any agriculture um, but uh, people like um, this person like uh, McKimmon and Graber they feel like the earth needs to be in this pristine um, uh, form of nature in pristine state untouched by human hands and so the problem with that is obviously is like well we human beings have to inhabit the earth also and like I said if we left uh, certain parts of the earth in its pristine uh, natural form pristine natural state we would have no such things as farms to raise our food we certainly wouldn't have enough food to feed 8 billion plus people and if we even uh, resorted as they did in the people in Sri Lanka to purely organic methods of farming that would not be enough to sustain us agriculturally now again um, organic farming is okay as long as you understand that it has to be economically viable in other words people have to be willing to pay extra for organic food okay and that's fine if they do but you can't expect the entire world to operate that way we would uh, soon have the kind of starvation that the uh, these people on the left predicted okay so they have this understanding this misunderstanding actually uh, it's called um, Malthusian economics or the Malthusian economic system uh, by which the belief is that there are too many people in the world and eventually they're going to outstrip its ability to farm and produce food and that that was what they were saying back in the 60s and 70s that never came to pass they thought in the 1980s we would have we basically have mass starvation and that never came to pass in fact there are less food there are less people with food insecurity now than there were uh, back in the 60s where this notion was first made popular 
uh, even back in 1989 when McKibben and Graber are talking about how we're ruining the planet. And what people like that don't understand is the human capacity to problem solve. They assume that whatever level of technology we're at now, uh, in this case it would be in the 1980s or 70s, or you understand, that that would never advance. And luckily for us, we are pretty clever animals and we are able to reason out and learn how to advance our agricultural technology and increase our agricultural output to the point where this planet can sustain uh, 8 billion people where at one point it was thought that we would start running out of food right around 5 or 6 billion people or maybe even before that and so these people uh, underestimate the human capacity to adapt and overcome their challenges in the world and that also extends to the area also of climate change where they're talking about the sea level rises and they don't understand that human beings have this ability to adapt as I mentioned um, to overcome like if sea level rises um, people just don't sit there and drown and say oh well I, I guess um, we're just gonna have to drown now no they build things like levees and dikes and dams uh, things like particularly you see in the Netherlands most of the Netherlands is below sea level most of Amsterdam I think virtually all of Amsterdam I believe is under sea level and hundreds of years ago they came up with systems of levees and dikes that they have pretty much now where they're prepared for not just a hundred hundred year flood but a thousand year flood that's what they uh, pride themselves in in their um, in, in their land development in the Netherlands and also you have all sorts of cultures even back going back to uh, ancient China and uh, South America where they're dealing with problems of land where they're building uh, terraces of farms uh, on mountains in order to create more arable farmland and of course we've long had the technology to control again the, the sea level um, the rise of sea level and you have uh, cities like Venice said that have been coping with the fact of being below sea level for hundreds of years now and somehow there is still a Venice right uh, despite the fact that a lot of it is below sea level they um, just replaced their roads with waterways and their vehicles are you know in to get around Vienna it, you now have gondolas or water taxis and there are other uh, countries that have similar systems where basically the primary way of getting around is by water taxi or by boat and so um, what the Malthusians believe um, what they do and what people like these climate change alarmists do chronically is they uh, sell short 
uh, humankind's ability to adapt, improvise, and overcome in order to solve the problems that Mother Nature throws at it. Some, you know, if an area is too cold, um, we're able to create heat. Uh, we're able to create heaters and stoves and, and things like that so that we don't have to freeze during the cold weather months and we don't have to migrate to warmer climates as pre-agrarian uh, societies once did. And so we were able to uh, adapt that way. And then, as I mentioned, we were able to adapt um, in places where there's flooding and there's storms and now less people die of natural disasters now than a hundred years ago okay so the the climate change alarmists want to think of things before the industrial revolution and after it and they pine for the era of before the industrial revolution before uh, America or the, the uh, civilized world started um, in their mind poisoning the world or poisoning the earth or destroying the earth. It's actually that industrial revolution that led to advances in technology that uh, uh, led to uh, hydrological advances where we're to the point now we, we can create dams and levees and dikes and things of that uh, nature where we can we were not uh, subject to the whims of Mother Nature. Now, of course, Mother Nature is still powerful enough. Um, we've seen in the various tsunamis and earthquakes and hurricanes throughout the year where you know, we are all but helpless against nature's fury. But what we can do is we can devise ways and systems of evacuating people and detecting storms earlier. These are all things that we have, you know, our weather radar and our satellites and things like that that helps us uh, track storms and predict their land landfall, uh, sometimes even days in advance, if not hours, at least, um, you know, if not days, at least hours in advance, enough time for people to evacuate. And how many, um, probably tens of, or even hundreds of thousands, maybe even millions of, of people throughout the world have been saved through such advances that were only made possible through the technological revolution, through the uh, industrial revolution, and then the space age, and now the communication age, and beyond. Um, these things, uh, you know, these lives are saved not despite our technical advances, but because of them. And again, as I also mentioned, we have uh, sophisticated me uh, methods of farming uh, involving satellite data and soil analysis and biochemistry and regular chemistry and working out what is the optimal yield and uh, how much to water a certain field for its optimal yield and what to what sort of fertilizer is the best kind of fertilizer to use and how to make the best fertilizer and these things only came to be through our 
technological revolution or industrial revolution, not to not despite it. And so, again, uh, where these Malthusians uh, had it wrong is again they vastly underestimate and and chronically underestimate our ability to problem solve and adapt and overcome. And uh, anybody who, who's old enough, old enough to remember, for instance, uh, in the seventies, where uh, the 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 problem quote-unquote, was going to be not global warming, but global cooling. It was predicted that we were entering a new ice age. And in fact, the one thing that could forestall the ice age, uh, at least temporarily, was uh, our use of greenhouse gases. And they, that the greenhouse gases might save us from the ice age for a number of years. And of course, that alarmism went out um, or went all through uh, most of the 70s and and then it and then you had all Al Gore make all these predictions there would be no more uh, Arctic ice after a certain time and that was like 15 years ago he made all these predictions uh, 15 years ago and um, today we still have snow on Mount Kilimanjaro we still have the Arctic and Antarctic ice fields year-round. They don't melt. Um, the ozone layer repairs itself. And so you have all these predictions. And so despite having all these predictions wrong, uh, they, they keep um, going on with their climate change alarmism. And a lot of that unfortunately is due to this very anti-human uh, philosophy um, that I talked about where it's again a deeply immoral philosophy for the reasons I, I went over they deny our ability to for life um, they deny the value of human life and and one of the things I, I talked about in the uh, in the article I just read is um, could you imagine a world leader that uh, held such beliefs and unfortunately they do uh, Trudeau uh, the Prime Minister of Canada is one of those people that believe uh, people are the problem and uh, so he's trying to limit his country's um, farm production and cut back on their farm, their ability um, to farm, in particular uh, their uh, cattle, their, their ability to raise cattle. And of course, the same thing is going on in the Netherlands. And then you have in uh, most of Europe, uh, particularly in Germany, they're rethinking their commitment to uh, alternative fuels um, or, or, or alternative energy sources like wind and solar. Because if the wind doesn't blow and the sun isn't shining, then you don't have the kind of reliable energy that you need. 
And so the theory is that, of course, what the uh, climate change alarmists or climate change proponents would tell you is that, oh, well, now we just have batteries and that the batteries can save the energy. And so the sun then doesn't need to be shining 24 hours a day. But still, again, it works in theory, but in practice, um, I'm here to tell you that fossil fuels still make up the difference. And when wind and solar is not enough, um, particularly in the winter, um, you had last year, or I think maybe earlier this year, uh, a really uh, long freezing spell in Texas, and a lot of the windmills froze up, and they were generating no energy for that period. And of course, being winter, of course, you have um, less and less sunlight during the day because you're dealing, of course, with uh, less daylight hours, less hours of daylight and day during the winter in the Northern Hemisphere. And so you have these two problems where you can't get enough solar because you have the shortened days and, you're not, and you don't have enough wind because the cold weather is freezing up the turbines and now you're not producing enough uh, energy to meet the demands of your people. And you can also see um, right now uh, we're about a week away, we're less than a week away from the beginner, beginning of winter and I'm sure it's already uh, starting to get cold in parts of Europe what are they going to do when it gets really cold? And so now we have this experiment to see uh, just with how little natural gas and oil uh, countries can survive on, okay, during the winter. And what if it's a harsh winter in, say, Germany or the Netherlands? What are they going to do? So I just wanted to bring this up because it crosses over it's more than just bad politics uh, some of it actually gets to quite destructive um, ideas when they're implemented and uh, people's lives may be at stake and we're looking at the beginning of winter as I speak and we're about to embark on a very dangerous experiment to see just how how little energy uh, Europe can live uh, through a winter with. And I don't think uh, in some cases we're going to like the results of that experiment. And so I'm going to leave it there and thank you very much for listening and watching. Thank you for uh, following the Dystopic Journal. Those of you who uh, follow the Dystopic Journal, particularly on Rumble and Please uh, listen to the LR podcast. Uh, follow the LR podcast LR podcast on Getter, and follow Liberty Relearned on Facebook. Follow me, JP Mac, on uh, Parlor. And until then, until uh, I see you again, which may be around Christmas. Uh, please uh, stay healthy, happy, and free.